Welcome to the new BYP Podcasts. I would like to thank all of you for your support and donations and love. If you would like to consider just a small monthly donation, weekly, a one-time donation, it really doesn't matter. It allows us to continue providing you with excellent content and ideas to think through and study on. Before I get into Charles Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine on God the Father, I recently discovered a paper that I wrote about a year ago, and I would like to share this as a supplement to what Charles Harrell and Boyd Kirtland has said. This is my own research into Joseph Smith's problematic description of God in the Lectures on Faith. Joseph Smith said in part this about God. God is the only supreme governor and independent being in whom all fullness and perfection dwells, who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, without beginning of days or end of life, and that in him every good gift and every good principle dwells, and that he is the father of lights. In him the principle of faith dwells independently, and he is the object in whom the faith of all other rational and accountable beings centers for life and salvation. Now, I think this holds enormous and fatal contradictions, and it's more or less pure guesswork on Joseph Smith's part. For instance, how would he know he is omniscient and knows everything unless Joseph Smith himself knew everything? Allow me to unpack this a little bit, and let's take a look. Since Mormonism is a putative restoration of Christianity, when we read about Christianity, we can apply it to Mormonism. For the purposes of these arguments, they are both one and the same, as is their God. It is as simple an explanation as I have read anywhere in print. The problem of a God who is both all-good and all-powerful is succinctly described. If God were omniscient, then he knew when he created Adam that Adam would sin. He knew human beings all would suffer, regardless of whether the evidence of evil can be theological explicated. An all-knowing creator deliberately placed humans in its path. This is at least criminal negligence, if not malice. Those who invoke free will forget that we all act according to a human nature that was supposedly created by God himself. You can argue all around the bushes on this point, but you can't get away from the fact that Adam did not create his own nature. At the moment of creation, an omniscient deity would have been picturing the suffering and damnation of most of his creation. This is mean-spirited. The problem of evil gives the lie to the claim that a god can be both all-good and all-powerful. And again, since Joseph Smith claimed of God in him every good gift and every good principle dwells, then the atheist argument gains traction with their answer based on the theological claim concerning God. 
This combination, this peculiar combination of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence is what makes the problem of evil such a thorn to traditional theists. The existence of evil is positive empirical evidence against the existence of an all-good deity. It is the omni in omnibenevolence that makes it incompatible with omniscience. If God knows in advance that there will be evil as a direct and indirect result of his actions, then he is not all good. He is at least partly responsible for the harm. Since God has the desire and the power to eliminate evil, why doesn't he? If God is truly all-knowing and all-powerful, then he is not omnibenevolent when he does not stop unnecessary harm. This is especially true when he is asked to do so by his children who claim to love him and he them, and who pray for his protection, believing he meant it when he said, All things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Since the success of prayer is no better than random chance, we appear to have empirical evidence that God, if he exists, does not care. Well, how could he have created an angel named Lucifer, who possessed some quirk in his character that would cause him to go wrong? If this were deliberate, then God is an accessory to evil. If it were accidental, then God is not omnipotent. Omnipotence contradicts omniscience. To be omniscient means that all future facts are known to the person who is all-knowing. This means that the set of knowable facts is fixed and unchangeable. If facts cannot be changed, then this limits the power of God. If God knows what will happen tomorrow, then he is impotent to change it. If he changes it anyway, then he is not omniscient. That, in a nutshell, is the problem and reason why Joseph Smith's God cannot exist. It cannot possess contradictory properties and be real. Now, this is not to say that no God exists. It is to note that the kind of God Joseph Smith claimed here to be real isn't real it is contradictory. To me, Joseph Smith appears to simply fall into a well-worn line of wishful thinking by a mortal man concerning a potential future for humanity. Vincent Bugliosi put it best, With respect to man creating God, is it only coincidence that God just happens to possess every single trait, all good, just, merciful, intelligent, etc., that man could possibly want him to have, and every power to ensure that there is life after death and that we see our loved ones again too? Or is it more likely that this is circumstantial evidence that man created God to meet these needs and desires of his? Bugliosi goes on to demonstrate that God is not all good since he allows evil. He may not be the actual instigator of it, but he does allow it to occur. Is this something an all-loving being would do, though? An all-loving being.
You see, is it enough that God was there in spirit during the Nazi Holocaust, yet did nothing to prevent so atrocious an evil, just for the sake of allowing a few madmen their free agency to chop, burn, maul, starve, operate on without anesthesia, gas, desecrate, and murder millions of people, men, women, and little children? The Christian retort is far too lame and desiccate when it proclaims God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But apparently God doesn't love the world enough to prevent or stop all the horror, murder, tragedy, even genocide in the world. Some love. We're told that the reason is God has some kind of a plan or another for all of his children. Bugliosi once again, with myriads of examples showing how insipidly stupid the ad hoc excuse is, he notes what plan for their lives did God have for the 250,000 Japanese who were bombed to smithereens at Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th, 1945? Was it their purpose in life to test the efficacy of the atomic bomb? Ouch! Another ad hoc excuse to get God off the hook of the evil of evil is one even Joseph Smith actually used. It shall be for thy good and for thy experience. Once again, Bugliosi is our guide for the moment here. God knows we can never appreciate the good without the experience of the evil. My response is to this is that I'd rather have an existence where no one robs, rapes, and murders, and we don't know what good and evil are in a world where men do rape, rob, and murder. But we have the wonderful knowledge of the difference between good and evil. Well, obviously, this argument is not a valid defense for why God permits bad things to happen to good people. And again, since God is all-powerful, why wouldn't he simply create humans who could appreciate good without having evil to compare it with? Richard Carrier has some in-depth thinking on this, considering God as the example in relation to what we think is good and evil, as does the biblical scholar Bart D. Ehrman, which I will get to. I will touch on some of the highlights of Carrier's argument, but by all means, if you want to think I'm taking it out of context with the ellipses, the three little dots, then do get the book and read it. It only takes a few hours and packs a phenomenal wallop. If anything, I am guilty for interest in saving time and space of watering his argument down a bit. Here is Richard Carrier's argument. He, God, can certainly do any and every moral thing that you and I can do, and certainly much more than that, being so much bigger and stronger and better than we are in every way. Well, Carrier's next point is the icing on the cake, so far as I can tell. If I had the means and the power and could not be harmed for my efforts, I would immediately alleviate all needless suffering in the universe. All guns and bombs would turn to flowers. All garbage dumps would become gardens. There would be adequate resources for everyone. And we still hear that atheists are an immoral, wicked bunch. But Carrier then puts a very fine point on his point. That's what any loving person would do. Yet I cannot be more loving, more benevolent than the Christian God. 
Therefore, the fact that the Christian God does none of these things, in fact, nothing of any sort whatsoever, is proof positive that there is no Christian God. And there are many things the Christian God could do. Excuses won't fly here either because a loving being, by definition, acts like a loving being. It is a direct contradiction to claim that someone is loving yet never does what a loving person does because the name refers to the behavior. To be loving literally means to be loving. You can't be heartless and claim to be loving. And a loving God would be no different. Failing to act in a loving way would be an unbearable for a loving being. There is no escaping the conclusion. From having the desire and the means to act in a loving way, it follows necessarily that God would so act. But he doesn't. Therefore, once again, the Christian God does not exist. Is it enough that, as Joseph Smith said, God has every good principle in him, though? Not by any reason or means. Having it means nothing if it is not acted upon and used. God is certainly not powerless to use his benevolence to benefit us, since the claim is he loves us and he wants us to have salvation. Carrier notes what we as loving people would do in many circumstances that show love as loving beings, stopping an impending tsunami that would kill hundreds of thousands. We would do these things, and God can too. Therefore, either God would have done them too, or God is worse than us, far worse. Either way, Christianity is false. And all the ad hoc excuses about mysterious plans or free will or it's for our own good are just that. Excuses to hide the fact that God does nothing that a loving being would and ought to do. Christians have no evidence that these excuses are actually true. They simply make them up in order to explain away the failure of their theory that God exists and he loves us. God cannot possibly struggle under any limitations greater than the limitations on us. If anything, he must surely have fewer limitations than we do. And God loves love and is therefore a loving being, which means he desires to act like one. These two elements of the theory entail observations, and nothing can explain away the fact that these observations are never made. So the Christian theory is either empirically false or self-contradictory and therefore logically false. In fact, all the ad hoc excuses for God's total and utter inaction amount to the same thing, claiming that different rules apply to God than to us. But this is not allowed by the terms of the theory, which holds that God is good which must necessarily mean that God is good in the same sense that God expects us to be good. Otherwise, calling God good means something different than calling anyone else good. And therefore, calling God good is essentially meaningless. If God can legitimately be called good, this must mean exactly the same thing when you or I are called good. Well, that entails a certain behavior. The Christian God would do at least as much as you and I can do. 
The fact that he doesn't proves that the Christian God doesn't exist. It does not matter what plans God may have, he still could not refrain himself from doing good any more than we can, because that is what it means to be good. He would be moved by his goodness to act, to do what's right, just as we are. God would not make excuses for nothing could thwart him from doing what is morally right. Conversely, any excuse that could be imagined for God's inaction must necessarily apply to us as well. If there is a good reason for God to do nothing, then it would be just as a good reason for us to do nothing. The same moral rules that are supposed to supply apply to us must apply to every good person, and that necessarily includes the Christian God. God cannot have more reasons to not do something good than we do, so if it is good for us to alleviate suffering, then it is good and necessary for God to do so as well. Well, now, interestingly, there is a deductive evil disproof of God. It goes like this. One, if God exists, then the attributes of God are consistent with the existence of evil. Two, the attributes of God are not consistent with the existence of evil. Three, therefore, God does not and cannot exist. <laughs> Remarkable, isn't it? Expanding on this is some in some fascinating articles that are too long to explore here, is this idea, if it is possible for God to create humans who sometimes freely choose the good, as assumed in the free will defense, then it should also be possible for God to create humans who always freely choose the good, and so there should be no evil. The free will defense raises the paradox of whether an omnipotent being can make things it cannot control. George H. Smith described the problem, an all-powerful being in our universe would have, one among many actually, to accept the idea of an omnipotent God. One must believe that it is in some way possible for an entity to act in contradiction to its nature. In a universe containing an omnipotent being, any action would be open to any entity at any time upon the bidding of God. Causality would be a sham, and rational explanation would crumble. Joseph Smith appears to not know what he is talking about then in claiming his God is omnipotent. Today, with our vast machinery, which helps us in our understanding of the very large and the very small and everything in between, though we're not at total knowledge yet, a possible impossible dream anyway, it is crucial to grasp one essential point that comes in up again and again in the literature. It would be foolish to deny that many of the traditional religious ideas about God and man and the nature of the universe have been swept away by the new physics. The new physics has overturned so many common-sense notions of space and time and matter that no serious religious thinker can ignore it. From the atomism of Democritus, Epicurus, and Lucretius, the ancient naturalists, there was never found any higher power in the universe. It's all a conglomeration of atoms physically, so far as we have ever discovered, according to Victor J. Stenger, an atomic physicist. 
the total absence of empirical facts and theoretical arguments to support the existence of any component of reality other than atoms in the void can be taken as proof beyond reasonable doubt that such a component is anywhere to be found. The scientific triumph of atomism represents a philosophical triumph for the recognition by ancient atomists that the world can be understood without calling upon any forces from outside the world. No wood sprites, fairies, no angels, no devils, no gods or spirits of any sort. Well, Bertrand Russell said years before Stenger wrote his words, the clergy have fought a losing battle against science in astronomy, geology, anatomy and physiology, biology and psychology, and sociology. Ousted from one position, they have taken up another. After being worsted in astronomy, they did their best to prevent the rise of geology. They fought against Darwin in biology, and at the present time they fight against scientific theories of psychology and education. At each stage they try to make the public forget their earlier obscurantism in order at their present obscurantism may not be recognized for what it is. Well, it's why doubt in religion has become stronger and strongly justified through the last few decades and into our new millennium. They don't wish us to know the truth. They wish they could force us to accept their own beliefs as the truth, something that has been refuted again and again, including Joseph Smith's own view of God. Now, Michael Shermer agreed, and then quoted Einstein appropriately, that even though science is flawed and incomplete— it is still the best tool we have going for us. And here's how Einstein put it. One thing I've learned in long life, that all our science measured against reality is primitive and childlike, and yet it is the most precious thing we have. So this gives rise to the comment that, based on the history of the interaction of religion against science, appears to be more true than most want it to be. Atheists seek truth. Theists ignore it. David Silverman, the president of American Atheists, has put it well. The problem is that religion is wrong so often and on so many levels that even basic knowledge can be inconvenient. In order to get rid of the contradictions of their views of God and scriptures and theology, apologists basically retrofit their holy texts and ideas to mean something it didn't originally that after science fills in a gap of knowledge. Nicholas Everett described it this way, The findings of modern science significantly reduce the probability that theism is true, because the universe is turning out to be very unlike the sort of universe we would have expected had theism been true. Now we turn to a popular LDS author, Terrell Givens, he wrote using Canon Farrer, he said, Facts are not determined by authority. Authority can make law to be law, but authority cannot make facts to be facts. Or as Henry Eyring once quoted his dad saying, a world-famous scientist, by the way, In this church, in Mormonism, in this church you don't have to believe anything that isn't true. Well, may I include Joseph Smith's faulty definition of God in that as well? It doesn't jive at all with what philosophy or astronomy indicate the nature of reality is these days. 
See, when we consider J. Reuben Clark Jr. once speculating on the origin of man, admitting intelligently enough what I think or believes makes no difference whatever to the facts. <laughs> so his discussing the eternal intelligences that Joseph Smith's theology postulates, as well as a supposed spiritual premortal existence and other esoteric doctrines like these make no difference on the fact that such things are mere postulations, not reality. And why is this? For one very honest and easily accessible reason. The natural slash material realm is so far the only realm that is reliably, reliably detectable. There is no evidence that there is any realm other than the natural material realm. Any supernatural or immaterial reality is so far, in principle and in practice actually, undetectable. And therefore, we have no scientific reason to claim that it even exists. Along with that, neither does the God Joseph Smith proposed as being real exists. There's simply no evidence for that kind of being anywhere in the universe. See, this is not to say that there is no God. Now, this gets interesting here. It just is the one so described who cannot exist in our universe. The evidence doesn't back the claims of the kind of being God is supposed to be. And on the Christian end of theology, Anthony Flew, according to Kai Nielsen, a philosopher, an incorporeal making and preserver of the universe, with the entire universe being dependent on this incorporeal maker, well, this is problematic because we have no idea at all on how to identify or pick out a being so characterized. We have no way of knowing whether or not such a concept has or could have an actual application. And so things stand at the moment while we await more evidence and we continue learning about the cosmos with the very best tools we have for now. Thank you for listening to my Backyard Professor podcasts. I will return with more from Charles Harrell in the next podcast on the Mormon version of God the Father.